So last week, we introduced uh, this idea of being controlled by the Spirit. Paul, as we were walking through Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul was writing that we should not be drunk with wine. So he gives us a command, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And we kind of talked about what being filled with the Spirit means. That means being controlled by the Spirit. If being drunk with wine means being controlled by alcohol, then being filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And through that, there were these outflows, these behaviors that would happen. As you are controlled by the Spirit, as you are submitting your life to the Word of God, the Spirit begins to control you, and what does that look like? And the final outflow of being controlled by the Spirit was found in verse 21, and that is that we would submit to one another out of love for Christ. We kind of talked about this word submit a little bit, because this word submit is kind of a negative word in our culture. You know, you submit when you lose a fight. You submit when you're inferior. So, so we've got this, this word submit has this like bad reputation, and we don't want to submit But even beyond that, it's a little bit confusing because what does it mean to submit to one another? The word in Greek is hupostaso, and it means it was actually a a military uh, word to begin with, and it meant to be under the control or under the authority of someone else. This, This word submit actually brought organization to something that desperately needed organization. Could you imagine it? Imagine our armed forces with no organization. No one in command, no chief and commander, no generals. Everybody's calling the shots. What would war look like? Could we be effective? I don't think so. There needs to be people that call the shots. There needs to be some organizational structure. And so that's where this word hupostaso came in. It meant to be underneath the command of someone else. But as it started to be adopted in the civilian life, it didn't just mean to be underneath the command of someone else, but actually to cooperate with. If it was still on that military meaning, to be under the command of, what would it mean when we say to submit to one another? How on earth could you submit to one another? Oh, I'm putting myself underneath the command of you, you put yourself underneath the command of me, And we're back to disorganization, right? So we kind of started boiling it down to this idea of cooperating with each other. And we we actually brought up Philippians 2 as an example, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I think this is what it really is. When we talk about submission, I think what we're really talking about, and in particular, this term mutual submission or submitting to one another, what we're really talking about is, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what I think he's really getting at in verse 21. This mutual submission, it's looking at other people and counting them more significant than myself. Paul then goes on to outline or give us the gold standard of what this submission looks like. Let each of you uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves. So now he's going to give us the gold standard. What does this look like? What does it look like to be mutually submissive? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what he's saying here is, basically, Jesus was on the same level of God as God the Father. He is part of the Godhead. He is God. But, emptied himself, and this emptying himself doesn't mean that he emptied himself of the Godhead, but he actually kind of, what it really means is like demoted himself. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the gold standard of mutual submission. This is the gold standard of what it means to cooperate, to lift someone else above yourself. Christ, being the creator of the world, of the universe, being your creator, who loves you with such a great great love, made this perfect world, but in our rebellion decided that we didn't want to do things God's way. We decided to rebel against God, and you might not think you're a very rebellious person. You might think that you're actually a really good person. And if you compare yourself to some serial killer, you're correct. You're a pretty good person. However, you don't meet God's standard. Because every single one of us at some point in our lives has said, forget you, God. I know you created this world with moral principles, but forget you, God. I don't want to live by that particular moral principle. It could be all kinds of different things. Maybe it's actually not putting your neighbor ahead of yourself. Maybe it's just looking out for your own self-interest. Maybe it's just being selfish for one minute of your life. But that one minute of your life is in rebellion against God. And what that does is it separates you from God. This God who loves you and created you, you have now rebelled against and have been separated apart from. And because of that rebelliousness, you deserve death. You deserve eternal separation from God. But God being a God of such great love towards you, came and he paid the price. And that's what Paul's describing here. He came to this earth, he became a man, and he paid the price for your rebellion against him. And all you have to do to no longer be separated from God, but to be reunited with your Creator who knows you intimately, who who has a specific reason why he created you, who, who knows how you can be the best you because he created you, is to put your faith and trust in His work on the cross. And when you do that, He renews you. He makes you new. But this is the example. Now, Christ willingly came to this earth and paid the penalty for your behalf, but could you imagine what the cross would look like, what Christ's life would look like without submission? Instead of willingly walking to the cross, instead of willingly going to the cross, maybe he did it begrudgingly. As people spat on him, he spat back. When the Roman soldiers began to hit him, he said, I've had enough of this. And he called fire from heaven and struck them down. 
If it weren't for Christ's willing submission in humbling himself to lift us up, in fact, there would have never been the cross. And there would never be a hope for you and I to become fully who God has created us to be. We would still be lost searching for our identity, searching to try to fulfill a hole in our heart that only God can fill. Instead of the cross, there would have only been torment for us. So when we are commanded to submit to one another, it's easy for us to ask, but have they earned my submission? Did we earn Christ's submission? The command isn't to submit to those who have earned it, but simply submit. Lift them up. Think of them as higher than yourself. So last week in Ephesians 5.21, we introduced this idea of submission. And that is actually what's going to be controlling the theme of this next section. The theme is going to be submission. Now many commentators, theologians, translators debate if verse 21 should be with the previous paragraph or it should, should it be coupled with the next paragraph. So should the first paragraph end with Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or should verse 21 go with the next paragraph, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's a big debate, there's a raging debate about this. Most people don't realize this, but there is. And most translators and most translations end up with 21 being on the first paragraph. And there's some arguments for this. There's some reasons for this. Those that argue for the previous paragraph, that 21 should go with 20, point out that it is an outflowing of being controlled by the Spirit. This idea of mutual submission is an outflowing of being controlled by the Spirit. So this next section, starting in verse 22 is a series of house codes. These house codes or codes of conduct were were very common in ancient Rome. They were rules or principles that people were supposed to live by. And because Christianity was considered new as the Old Testament authors wrote, as the New Testament authors wrote, they would frequently incorporate house codes, house rules, as a way to show the ethics that accompany the theology. There were a lot of people that were suspicious of Christianity. And they wanted to know, okay, so you say that God has made us a new creation. How does this play out in our day-to-day living? New Testament writers knew this, and so they write this. They incorporate these house codes. That's what this next section is going to be. So these codes in Ephesians came under three major sections. Husband and wife, parents and children. We'll get into that next week. Master and slave. For many, this is closely connected to that military definition of hupostasso. They read these and they think, surely this is what it means to be under the command of someone else. 
So those making the argument that 21 belongs with 20 and 19 point out that this type of submission is a military submission, not a mutual submission. Therefore, 21 belongs with 19 and 20. Those that argue that the latter paragraph, so verse 21 belongs with verse 22, start by recognizing that the word submit is not actually found in verse 22 with simply taking it for verse 21. So, in the original Greek, verse 22 reads like this. Wives, to your own husband as to the Lord. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? What on earth? Wives, to your own husband as to the Lord? But in the Greek, what, the way that it's structured in the Greek is it actually takes that verse 21 submission and brings it down into 22. That's why all of your translations will say what, what makes sense to us Wives, submit to your own husbands. But they're only doing that because the word submit is found in 22 or 21. So t- verse 22 cannot make sense without verse 21. Why then would you separate verse 21 and verse 22 as two different paragraphs and two different ideas if the two are, are uh, linked together? So in the Greek, there are no paragraphs. There are no giant spaces with headings. Most of us, not only do, do verses 21 and 22 signify two different paragraphs, but most of us have like this huge gap in between with a header here. And so as we read this, we're like, okay, I'm done with verse 21. I'm done with the outflowing of the Spirit. Now let's get on to how husbands and wives should interact. And I don't think that's what Paul's getting at at all. In fact, I think the reason the debate rages is because 21 is a transition statement. It's not an either-or. It's not does it belong to the last paragraph or does it belong to to the former paragraph, to the new paragraph. What it is is a transition statement that belongs to both. Paul is linking directly what, how mutual submission is an outflowing of the Holy Spirit and how this plays out in the rest of our lives. So we cannot separate the two. Mutual submission is going to look like this, is basically what he's saying. If you have the outflowing of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you are being controlled by the Spirit, you are going to be mutually submissive And this is what mutual submission will look like with all of these relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. So as we read through each of these circumstances, starting with husbands and wives, there is an idea of authority How are parents to submit to children? That's kind of a silly thought to most of us. But if we stop thinking about authority the way we typically do and start thinking about it in a biblical sense, I think these will start to make a lot more sense. So if we let verse 21 be the general uh, principle of mutual submission, then we'll see what the different roles of submission and the role of authority figure with submission will look like. 
So the first example is husbands and wives, and that's what we'll begin with today. That's what we'll examine today as we continue our series, Better Together, a look at Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to husbands, sorry, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water uh, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think this is one of the most hated pieces of scripture in our culture today. I have read this at weddings and actually literally been laughed at. Like, I have heard people scoffing at me. And I think it's because most people don't quite understand what's going on here. They don't understand the the role of mutual submission. In fact, as I was walking through this with Jen earlier, she was like, I've never heard verse 21 connected with verse 22. It's always, let's just gloss over this idea of mutual submission and jump straight into, wives, you better submit. And so because people have used this as a weapon, so often women typically don't like it. But they don't like it because it's been abused and because people don't understand it. But I think as we really dive in and explore it, we'll start liking it more and more. We'll we'll, we'll understand it and we'll understand why God has done this. So it starts off with verses 22 through 24 being the uh, role, the wife's role in this idea of mutual submission. Remember, as we read this whole thing, the idea outflows from this idea of mutual submission. So what is the wife's role in mutual submission? He starts off with, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is uh, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, it starts off with this uh, role for a wife. But like I said, we can't separate 21 and 22. 21 is the outflow of being controlled by the Spirit. 22 is how this mutual submission in marriage will look. So, we might even back up and just say, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the first command is for a wife to submit to the husband. Let's take that in view of how we've already defined submission, right? A a cooperation of, a lifting of someone else up. The uh, The phrase as to the Lord gives us the idea that as long as it is with God. So wives, submit Lift your husband up as to the Lord. As to the Lord means as it fits with God. This makes me think of Peter in Acts 5.29. 
when he says, we must obey God rather than men. So the idea here is, what happened with Peter is he was out preaching the gospel, right? And he's called into the Sanhedrin, and they put him on trial, and they tell him, you can't preach the gospel anymore. And he says, but God's told me to preach the gospel. And they said, but we told you not to. And he says, I have to obey God over you. And I think that's what's going on here, is wives, you have to submit to your husband as long as what he is doing is under the gospel, under biblical account. If your husband is commanding you to break anything that God has, or goes against anything that God has already commanded us, then you need to obey God rather than your own husband. Does that make sense? I can think of example after example that I know of, of a wife who was told you better submit the Bible, and they'd point right here and they'd say, the Bible says you have to submit to me. Now go do this thing that breaks God's commands. And that is exactly opposite of what is outlined here. As to the Lord, as long as it fits within God's, God's word, then you are to submit. But if it is breaking God's word, then you are actually not to submit. So there is a command followed by a reason. So it's submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So submit to him as long as he's following a biblical principle. You need to be submitting to him. And then there's the reason. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So headship here does mean authority. Some people try to, try to take this out of context and say the, wife, the husband doesn't have authority. But I think Paul's being very clear. And if we look back through uh, the Genesis account and the creation, we would see that there is an authority that God has set up. There are uh, authority structures. And Paul is making it clear that God has placed husbands as the authority over wives. So most people hear this and I think they get offended. And I think it's because we have the wrong idea of what authority means. We hear authority and we think of, obey my authority. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. Oh, and by the way, my authority only cares about my interests, not yours. How many of you have had to be, had a boss or had to serve under someone that had authority over you and didn't care about you at all? Do my will. Let me crack the whip, or, or I've got whips and I've got carrots, and I'm going to use those to get you to do what I want you to do. And that's what we usually think of as authority, but that's not a biblical authority. The Bible lays out a different approach to authority. Authority should never be self-serving. Husbands, authority should never be self-serving, but self-giving. Building others up. It's that same kind of idea found in Philippians 2, right? Thinking others as more important than yourself. And that gold standard is found in Christ. So husbands, you are supposed to be the head of the house, the authority figure in the house, and as the authority figure, as the head, you're supposed to put your wife's needs first. You're supposed to put your wife first. So then Paul connects the dots here when he writes, as Christ is head of the church. So how, did, how is Christ the head, the authority figure of the church? 
He came and he died for the church. So here Paul begins a lengthy comparison between marriage and Christ with his body. So you might be single here today, and you might be like, great, this is the sermon that I can check out, because it's just about husbands and wives. But I think there's two things that you can glean from today. Number one is, if you do get married one day, notice that this is Christ and the church painting a picture for you to strive for in your marriage. So study this, looking at how Christ and his church interact, and that's what it will look like in your marriage. But number two is, let's say you are past the age where you're like, I'm never... I'm not going to get married. I'll never get married. It's, and, it's, and you've dealt with it, and you're okay with it. This is still a take-home. You can still take home message today because it paints a picture of Christ's love for you. Paul's going to go back and forth here. The two pictures are of each other. So healthy marriages give us a better picture of how Christ and the church work. Conversely, Looking at Christ and the church actually gives us a picture of how a healthy marriage should look. The two are so similar throughout the rest of this section that it can be difficult to know which, he is, which Paul is referring to, Christ and his body or the husband and the wife, because they are constantly painting a picture of each other. So let's say you're never going to get married. Well, then you read this, And you think about how Christ is the head of you. And how Christ loves you. And I I would encourage you to look at a couple where the husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church. And you tell yourself, that's the way Christ loves me. Because he does. That's the idea of marriage. Marriage from the very beginning was made to paint a picture of of Christ and the church, of how Christ loves you. So the comparison starts with uh, comparing Christ as the head or authority of the church to the husband being the head or the authority in marriage. This is why we need to submit to Christ and his revealed word and why the wife is submit to submit to the husband. The wife in this picture helps paint the picture of the church helps us understand the role of the church to Christ. So he will describe the husband's role. He will describe the husband's duty. But before we move on, let's look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Once again, we see this comparison. The two are painting the picture of each other, right? There is an authority And one is yielding or cooperating or lifting the other one up to the the other. If there is no authority, there will be chaos. There has to be some structure, right? But once again, we we might ask what the authority's job is. Is the authority's job to command and say, you do my will? Or is the authority to provide an environment in which the other can thrive? Husbands, that's your job, to provide an, an environment where your wife can thrive. Ladies, who doesn't 
want an authority figure like that? Who doesn't want a husband like that? Where they're providing an environment for you to flourish. In the U.S., the final authority, I think a lot of people don't understand this, in the U.S., the final authority is the Constitution. So it's not our governor. The final authority is not the president. The final authority is the Constitution. And the Constitution's job is actually to limit the amount of authority in the government. In our church, the final authority is the Bible. And the Bible is going to provide precepts and principles for how we are to live our lives independently as well as corporately, as well as the church. So the husband is the head, thus the wife's duty is to submit in authority, to submit, sorry, to submit to him. To submit in everything, once again, it, uh, this, is, uh, this everything is in line with the final authority of the Bible. Just as our government has to follow what is outlined in the Constitution, so the husband is to follow what is outlined in the Bible. So if the wife's role is uh, in mutual submission is uh, yielding or cooperating with the husband's authority, what is the husband's role? Verses 25 through 28 will give us the husband's role, which is to give himself up for her. So Paul places the burden of this section on the husband. So all of 21 through 33, the burden is really going to be on the husband, whose headship must be expressed not in managing his wife, but in meeting her physical and emotional needs. In short, he is to give his own life for hers. Too often, we turn towards this section and we say, wives, submit. Wives, submit. And we beat wives up with submission. But the real burden here is actually on the husband. So 25... Husband, loves your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by, wa- uh, cleansed her by, washing, by the washing of the wa- of water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself. So he begins with this command to love your wife. In the Greek, the term is agape. We've talked about this quite a bit. Agape isn't necessarily an emotion, but it is a choice. And it is a choice to do what is best for her at all times. To put her needs in front of your own, even if it's going to cost you. I find it interesting that the husbands get this command, but not the wives. In fact, entire books have been written on why husbands get this command and not wives. And I think this is, it's because this is a part of man's mutual submission. This is your role in submitting to your wife. This is your role in showing how Christ lifts the church. By loving your wife. For right now, we'll just 
uh, say when a husband is doing his job, putting his wife's needs above his own, it is really easy for her to submit to his headship, to his authority. Husbands, if you have to use the submit card on your wife, if you are constantly turning to verse 22, if you have to tell your, your wife that the Bible says you need to submit to my authority, that is a sign that you are not using your authority properly. That is a sign that you are not putting her first. It is a sign that you're putting yourself first and then using the Bible out of context to beat your wife into submission. That's wrong. In the Ten Commandments, when it says, do not use the Lord's name in vain, most of us think of it as flippantly. Don't use God's name flippantly. But that's actually not what the text means. The text really means don't use God's name or his word to justify your own bad actions. So when we put our needs, husbands, as we put our needs first instead of our wives, when we're not really caring for our wife, and when you use the submit card, you are actually using God's name in vain. That's really using God's name in vain. I'll say that again. When you put your needs first, when you are not really caring for your wife, when you're not really loving your wife, and you use the submit card, you are using God's name in vain. You are unjustly using the word of God. So he commands us to agape our wives as Christ loved the church. And once again, we come to this comparison. On each side paints a picture of the other. Marriage and Christ and his church. So let's say you desire to agape your wife but you don't know how. Christ gives us that gold standard for how to love our wives. And as we live that out, it actually reveals to all who are watching, maybe your children, your own wife, your friends, unbelievers, it reveals to them how Christ loves us. You want a picture of how Christ loves you, look at how a husband loves his wife well. So that is the gold standard, the, the standard par excellence that Jesus gave himself up. The first aspect comes to the, back to the idea of agape. He gave himself up. He put the church's needs above his own. Not only did he die for the church, but he humbled himself. He became a man. He left heaven. He became a man, not just a man, but a man that was in poverty, a man that was despised, a man that was rejected. He willingly went to the cross and died a painful, brutal, torturous death for your sake. Even when you were in rebellion against him, he died for you. Husbands, if you are not sacrificing like that for your wife, you have no place to tell her to submit to you. And then he gives us why he did it. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Oh, sorry, let me back up. That he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So I think first we have to note that this is what Christ has done for the church. And once again, this paints a picture of how husbands can help their wives flourish. Husbands, your job is to help your wife flourish. But this does not mean that we can or even should try to do the exact same thing for our wives. Only Christ can do this. Only Christ can sanctify your wife. You cannot sanctify your wife. You cannot make your wife pure. You can help her flourish, just as Christ has made the church flourish. So this word sanctified means dedicated to God. Now it's in the aorist tense, just like cleansed is. Cleansed means to purge with regard to evil. So Christ, this is what Christ has done for the church, and he has cleansed her, he has sanctified her, he has dedicated her to herself, and he has cleansed her, he has purged her of all evil. I think this is so important, because no matter how dirty you think you are, no matter how disgusted you might be with yourself, once you put your faith and trust in Christ, he dedicates you to God and makes you washed like new. He cleanses you. He takes what you think is disgusting and he makes you a new creation. Now these are both in the aorist tense, meaning that has already happened, but it continues to have effect. So when you put your faith and trust in Christ, he automatically does this. He he sanctifies you, he cleanses you, and it has an impact through the rest of your life. So that is by the washing of the water with the word, The continued effect of this, so he he makes you a new creation, the continued effect is the maturing in God's grace through the renewing of your mind. As you read the Bible and submit to it, he continues to grow you in the sanctification and he continues to grow you in this new identity that you have. You don't become more sanctified. You don't become more cleansed. You actually mature in what he has already done by sanctifying you and cleansing you. And then he does it that he may present to you, or present you to himself with splendor, without wrinkle or such thing, that he might that she might be holy and with and without blemish. This is like chapters one through three all over again, isn't it? Are you catching some of that language of your new identity that you have in Christ? Who wouldn't want to submit to something like that? To someone who said, my entire job, my, my entire authority structure is to provide an environment in which you flourish, an environment in which you become all that God created you to be. And husbands, as, well, when, as we provide that environment, for our wives, and our wives flourish more and more, it paints a picture of how amazing God is with the church. And church, as we do that, and we submit more and more to God, and He grows us more and more in His grace, it paints an amazing picture for the world to see. So that's what Christ has done. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives. Verses 28 through 30 begins the reason husbands are to provide the environment for the wife to flourish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. So the two are one flesh. Husbands, when your wife flourishes, you flourish as well. Wives, part of helping your husband flourish is cooperating and lifting him up. And when he flourishes, you flourish as well. The two are intertwined. The two have become one flesh. When you operate out of an ideal or a philosophy of how can I serve her, how can I encourage her, how can I provide opportunities for her to grow, then husbands, you actually grow as well. Husbands, if you want to become all that God has created you to be, serve your wife. And as you serve your wife, you will become more and more of who God created you to be. And then he says, just, so, uh, just as Christ does the church. So we love our own bodies just as Christ loves the church because we are a member of his body. So at the end of 29 and the beginning of 30, we get back into the two pictures. Being so closely related, it's difficult to discern which he is talking about. But I think this goes back to the gold standard. As Christ loved his church as himself, so husbands, you are to love your wife. Christ loves his church as himself. If you're a single person, take that away. You may not have a husband that is providing an environment for you to flourish, but Christ is. And the more you embrace what Christ has done for you, the more you will flourish. So next, Paul will quote Genesis 2.24 to support his argument. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is pretty straightforward. God created man, God created woman, and through marriage the two became one. This reveals that God created this union to give a picture of Christ and the church, that the two pictures reveal each other, and that's what we see in verse 20, or 32. The, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So God, when he created marriage, all the way at the beginning, he had this plan that marriage would actually reveal what Christ and the church would look like. And so we see, once again, these two pictures are painting each other, and when we live healthy lives that are in mutual submission, that are in marriages that are honoring God, it actually paints a picture to the world of what Christ and his church looks like. And if you want to know what a healthy marriage looks like, look towards Christ and his church and how Christ loves his church. 33 then, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So he's been painting this picture, or he's been showing us how the two pictures paint each other and reflect each other, and then he goes back to however. However is kind of like Paul saying in any case. Even if you don't quite understand how this makes Christ, how, this, how marriage reflects Christ in the church, or how Christ in the church reflects marriage and can help you have a better marriage, even if you don't understand, take this away at least. 
So he's laid out this truth, and then he goes back to the command. So he's saying, don't just get lost in the picture. The picture is great, and it helps us, but remember the command. And here Paul lays out the command to the husband in such a way that you can imagine you are there, and he is discussing it with you personally. Because he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And so he's looking, you could see, say he was looking at every single husband, and he's saying, you love your wife as yourself. You love your wife as yourself. And he's making eye contact with every single husband, telling you, encouraging you to love your wife as yourself. The tone to the wife is much softer. It still has, it was a, an emphatic command to the husband. It's almost like he's taken the, the husband to the side and told him, hey, look, you need to love your wife as yourself. But to the wife, it's much softer. This is because the man is, uh, the command to the man is no matter what. No matter what the wife does, whatever the wife does, he is commanded to love her and put her first. No matter what she does, this is how you are to live. But the command to the wife is dependent on his being aligned with what is outlined in the Bible. And I think that's important to note. Wives, if he is not, if he is living in an authority structure that is against God, that is in rebellion against God, and he is urging you to join with him in rebellion against God, you are not to submit in rebellion against God. So it's softer. It's dependent upon the man being aligned with what is outlined in the Bible, yet still the wife is commanded to respect her husband. So husbands and wives, as you submit to each other, out of living out the roles God has given you, you begin to help the other thrive. And because you are one flesh, the more the other thrives, the more you thrive as well. So often I see couples that are on a teeter-totter. They start off having fun. You know, it's fun to get on. When you were a kid, it was fun to jump on the teeter-totter, right? And you're going up and down, and you're having a good time. And they feel like each other's the perfect fit. You know, when you're, you're going to get on a teeter-totter, you want someone that's about your weight, your size, and you're thinking, yeah, this is a great fit for me. We're, we're such a perfect match. We're so in love. And you jump on, and you're having fun. But soon, some of the, the fun starts to wear off. And you see the person on the other side of the teeter-totter back up a little bit. And what do you do when you see the person back up? You think, uh-oh, they're about to jump off. And if you've ever been up in the air in a teeter-totter, when the other person jumps off, you know it's painful. It's not fun. It comes crashing down, and it's going to hurt. And so what do you do? You begin to move further back on the teeter-totter as well. You've been there. You know the look in the eye when they're about to jump off. You know the pain. They, you feel when they jump and you come crashing down. So you begin to back off as well. And both want to be the one who jumps first. No one wants to be stuck on the teeter-totter when it's falling. And I think 
What Paul is outlining here is the solution isn't to back away, but the solution is to pull forward, to show them that you're not going to jump, to serve the other, to help provide an environment where the other flourishes. Husbands, you do this by loving your wife in the way that Christ loved the church, by putting her needs before your own. And wives, you do this by cooperating with your husband, by lifting your husband up. And as we do this, it paints a picture of Christ and the church. Those watching get to see us both flourish. Those watching get to see how Christ truly cares for his church. Single people, may you realize how much Christ loves you. And may you, as you continue to grow in his grace, pursue him, submit to him, and become all that Christ has made you to be. And married couples, may you have a marriage that reveals Christ to the world how much he loves us, that he was willing to sacrifice his own life so that we would flourish. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you came to this earth, humbled yourself, even though you didn't have to, to a world that was in rebellion against you. And you didn't ask why, you didn't ask have they earned the cross. You didn't ask, have they earned my love? Even when we were on the teeter-totter and we weren't just backing off, we were jumping off. You continued to scoot forward saying, hey, I'm here. I love you. And you paid the price in the midst of our rebellion, not because we earned it, but simply out of love for us. I pray that you would help husbands love their wives in such a way. Help me to love my wife in such a way not asking whether or not she's earned my love, but simply loving her so that she may flourish. And Lord, we ask that you would help the wives submit to their husbands, not asking if he's earned it, but helping him to flourish so that we may paint a beautiful picture of you and the church to the world. In your name we pray, amen.